0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to episode 102 of a Life in Ruins Podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnen and David Howe. In this episode, we are joined by Kay Matina, a PhD student in archaeology and indigenous science at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and a descendant of the Citizen Band of Potawatomi. And she first appeared on episode 54, SAA 86, Annual Conference, in Indigenous Response. Kay, thank you so much for coming back on the show. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are y'all? You know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, don't... <laughs> I guess we should say what day this we're recording this is, February 28th. We might be dead tomorrow. We don't know. But if you're hearing it now, you know. We made it.
0: Yeah,
1: we made it. <laughs> Is that too heavy? I think it'll be okay. <laughs> Everyone's thinking it.
0: <laughs> Timely. Everyone. Timely.
1: Yeah. I got my PewDiePie lights all blue and yellow with my Ukrainian flag hanging up. Like, um, it's a mood. So... But the mood we are in for today, though, is to actually have Kay back on the show to talk about her research. So kind of start off this show, Kay, in a, in a total 180, you know, <laughs> what were your first experiences in anthropology growing up? You know, we've kind of asked previous guests, you know, like, were you a dinosaur kid, history buff or nature nerve? Like what first drove you to anthropology?
0: Yeah. So as a 90s kid, I grew up with dis- the Discovery Channel and History Channel actually being the Discovery Channel and History Channel. Nice. And so alongside, you know, Billy and Mandy encouraged the Cowardly Dog, I watched those sorts of things. And that really got me interested in science. But then on top of that, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And although I no longer support collecting, my family was a family of collectors and we were really interested in archaeology and especially like ancestry and things like that within our own family history. And from a very young age, I was told all about my family history on both sides of my family. So especially on my dad's side of the family, we are mainly white settlers. One side of my family, my dad's grandfather is all Italian immigrants that immigrated somewhat mysteriously. My grandpa says that it is potentially mafia or mob related, which is interesting. Also could just be a story. We don't know. (laughs) And on my grandmother's side, that side of the family came over on the Mayflower And walked to Utah with Brigham Young, and were some of the first settlers in. The Salt Lake City Valley, well, actually more towards the Uinta Mountains, if you know anything about Utah geography. And then on that same side of the family, I'm related to Bill Hickman, who was the hitman for Brigham Young that was tasked with eradicating the indigenous people in the Salt Lake City Valley. And so on the other side with my mother's family, we are French, Scottish, and related to both Pontiac and Chief Wabonsi of the Potawatomi Nations, And so sort of a complicated history of people that never should have ended up together, but did and reconciled and found love. And so that sort of guided me on my interest in science and history, but most of all people and what makes us us. And that's really what got me excited about history. And then I also sort of started in zoology, actually. So starting with Steve Irwin... And Animal Planet, I actually at the age of eight emailed Steve Irwin and he responded and started sending right crikey and was sending me like gift packages and email correspondences and things like that. Um, up until his death. And his death really devastated me. But prior to his death, I really wanted to be a zoologist and was planning totally on traveling to Australia and learning zoology. But after his death, I was devastated, hit my preteens and preteen depression set in and dealt with a lot of trauma and sexual violence and things like that that totally changed my course. And later in my teens, I decided I wanted to be a CSI person working in criminal justice and things like that. And then, yeah, that kind of goes further along into my undergraduate degree where it all started.
2: just want to say really quick that that story, you might be the most American person I know. <laughs> and you're even an Italian immigrant because like Amer- Amerigo America, America, you got a lot going on there. And the other thing I would say before I let everyone else talk would be. That I also was, like, devastated when Steve Irwin died. I didn't go to school the next day. Same. Because it was just, like, a bummer. And I was watching all, like, the stuff on TV and whatnot. And, yeah, that's I think that's something common, like, a lot of scientists' kids share.
0: Yeah, my aunt actually called to check on me, and that's how I found out. And wow. we were out fishing, and I was totally devastated. And Did you punch like a fish in. or stingray? <laughs> no, I just cried a lot. Oh. <laughs>
3: Can I ask you a question about your communication with him? How was writing letters to Steve Irwin? Like, how were those conversations?
0: It was very unexpected. It was like, I, like for me, this sounds kind of weird, but Steve Irwin was like my Santa Claus. And like my one wish was to be a zoologist. So I was talking to my mom about it and she was like, just send an email. We'll draft an email together and send him an email. And if he responds, awesome. But if he doesn't, you at least got to send your your letter to Santa, so to speak. So and he responded really quickly and was incredibly kind and supportive and essentially like sort of expressed the desire to see me grow into a, a zoologist. Yeah. So hopefully I'm not letting him down. <laughs> even though I'm not a zoologist.
1: I think he'd be proud to know that you pursued higher education in the sciences yeah. in general though. Yeah. Steve taught us well.
0: He did. He did.
1: So that kind of like circling back to your, your passion for, for CSI. So did you originally like go into undergrad for like forensic anthropology?
0: Yeah. So I contacted a friend of mine or actually more of a mentor. She was the, I believe the fifth female supervisor of a crime lab. And she was actually the supervisor for the Las Vegas crime lab. And I contacted her just for advice because I was that weird kid looking at colleges when I was like 12. <laughs> and so I reached her out to her when I was that age. And she had said that I, if I had gone to Merciers University, which is in Erie, Pennsylvania, for their forensic anthropology, that she would hire me without a test. And that's based entirely on Mercyhurst's forensic anthropology program is incredibly rigorous, but they also require a lot of hands-on experience. So they have their own forensics lab and team that goes out and does forensic investigations that undergrads get to be a part of. And so it provides really practical and tangible hands-on experience rather than just book experience. And so I started... Going into that, especially after dealing with and moving past my trauma, I wanted to be able to help others who no longer had a voice themselves.
1: Gotcha. Were you there when Ottavazio was still faculty at, at Mercyhurst? I
0: yeah, sure was for a hot second.
1: <laughs> did you do the field school with him?
0: I did not. Um, so he was only there for maybe three months of my freshman year. And then he was removed from the faculty. And so we did our field school actually in Pennsylvania in Custaloga Town.
1: Gotcha. So, Kay, like, did you stick with the forensic anthropology degree the entire time at Mercyhurst? Or did you change concentrations kind of like towards the end of your tenure there?
0: Yeah, so I actually changed three times. So I started in forensic anthropology, right? Part of the things that changed me was I was told I had to take calculus and physics. And I was like, no, (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) Uh, Don't want to do that. But also, like after experiencing and interacting with some of the graduate students, I did not like the way that the graduate students, as well as the professors, sort of looked at people after they had passed, viewing them as objects and not respecting them as being people, especially as forensics, because you're dealing with particularly violent crimes. And the lack of respect that I was seeing for human remains was devastating, especially coming from a household that was, I was raised both sort of Catholic with like the Italian Catholic side, but also with my indigenous side, the approach to death was very different. Like I was never scared of death. Um, I knew it was just part of a journey and to see people that coped with death in really problematic ways, I didn't like it. And I knew that I would not mesh well with working with people who had to deal with death in those sorts of ways, which I understand having like everyone has their coping mechanisms. But I do think that that was particularly problematic and so that sort of pushed me away and I started studying more bioarchaeology stuff. And I really love the human anatomy and the body in particular. So I enjoyed taking a lot of those classes and then started to encounter similar things in bioarchaeology. And so I just sort of I wanted to know more about people and our spirits and our hearts and our culture and what makes us have relationships with others. And I was interested in in more of a holistic understanding of people. And that's what archaeology, I felt, could bring me. And so I think it was halfway through my junior year, I transferred and I was just an archaeology student, but I was also minoring in art. And so I spent a lot of my time doing art making practices that was also part of like my own self-care and art has always been integral to archaeology for me as well like i don't see necessarily a blur between them like there's or a distinction between them there's a lot of similarities and so i definitely kind of made a pretty big shift to focus on people and art making and things and materiality
3: it was like a step by step away from death specifically kind of yeah. kind of thing which i totally get i think that is something really difficult to study at least it would for me something to study objectively at at any sort of point you know I think I watched like Bones growing up and mm-hmm. you know those those stories were really like compelling and interesting and also very sad at the same point so I can I can totally understand that kind of slowly stepping away from something so heavy and Intense, and I'm glad you found that's something that is a little different and a little more exciting and more people-based. You know?
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. I feel a lot <laughs> better doing this, although it's still a struggle from time to time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, what did you do um, as part of your field school?
0: So, my I did four years of field school at Custaloga Town, which is actually located. It's a Boy Scout camp in Pennsylvania, and. Sort of where I started with the the first year was we were working with an archaeologist that was also removed from the faculty that following year. And we didn't do a whole lot or learn a whole lot. We did a lot of STPs and we found a lot of slag. And that was pretty much it. And that was pretty much the same for the next three years. We found a whole lot of nothing and dug a lot of holes. And then Mercyhurst hired a historical archaeologist and she brought in metal detectors from her experience working with same period sites. So this particular site was um, and is a Delaware site, and we were working collaboratively with the Seneca Nation of Indians in Salamaica, who, although the Delaware were absorbed into the Seneca Nation, they were sort of wanting to do the right thing by the Delaware people, and Gaiusuto was the chief of that particular village, and he was the guide for George Washington, which made the site incredibly interesting, because once we brought in the historical archaeologist and we started doing metal detecting, we found a copper gun butt and a copper kettle and a French trade bell. The copper gun butt was also likely French. And both the copper gun butt and the copper kettle were being cut and turned into tinkler cones. If you don't know what tinkler cones are, they are the cones or jewelry that's often affixed to jingle dresses, which are medicine dresses that are worn by indigenous women. And the dance is incredibly sacred and is used to dance away or pray away bad energy, bad spirits and issues, often relating to colonialism or in reaction to products of colonialism. And so to see, one, a village that was related to George Washington, so a guide for George Washington, also trading with the French, but not using the materials being traded with the French in ways that would have been expected. They were indigenizing their materials in incredibly unique ways. And so that was an absolutely amazing experience to be a part of. And more of a tangible archaeological methodology sort of perspective. It also taught me that systematic testing does not always work because we were doing the grid method where every five meters we would put an STP in and we missed everything. Every single (laughs) site was in between our STPs. And we actually found that there was one feature that we did find. With an STP that was a fire feature, and after we brought in the metal t- metal detector, we found that the the tinkler cones were being made around the fire. So we had just missed all of those artifacts. So yeah, I learned a lot from that field school.
3: Cool. And for the our listeners, STP is shovel test probe. Stands for shovel test probe. It's what we do on a lot of archaeological sites, and the way we obviously miss a lot of stuff as well. But uh, I think on that note, we're going to probe Kay further and ask her more questions in the next segment of episode 102 of A Life in Ruins podcast.
2: Welcome back to segment two of episode 102 of A Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Kay Matina and we're going to talk about grad school. So what was that experience like and why did you decide to go where you went?
0: Yeah, so after I graduated with my BA from Mercyhurst, I sort of didn't know what I wanted to do. My advisor, Dr. Ed Jolie, uh, Mercyhurst, who's also uh, an indigenous archaeologist, who's Lakota, had put me in touch and connected me to some of Dr. Sonia Attalay's work at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And I absolutely loved what she was doing. But I, again, like didn't know if I wanted to do grad school and commit to, you know, potentially 10 years of my life or if I wanted to just start working. So I applied for two things at the same time. The Pokegan Band of the Potawatomi were looking for a TIPO, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. So I applied for that position. And I also applied for the University of Massachusetts at Amherst with Sonia Atley for an MA, PhD. And UMass got back to me. And so I sort of led with that as like that's where I needed to be, like that's where I was being pushed to go to do. So I did that, and I'm incredibly grateful I did. Uh, and so I started that in 2019 and got my master's this last year. And I did a course based master's, and that was incredibly helpful because it gave me a good grounding and an education that Mercyhurst didn't have for specifically Mm -hmm. collaborative archaeology and contemporary archaeology and exposed me to a lot of really new ideas that I hadn't been exposed to. Carlton and I have talked about theory before, like not being exposed to things past post processualism. And so for the first time, I was being exposed to other ideas and other ways of thinking about archaeology. And it got me really excited. And so studying under Dr. Sonia Attalay especially was an incredible honor. And she has taught me so much and has guided me and has been such a great advisor in sticking with me. She's also Ojibwa. So the Ojibwa and the Potawatomi are cousins. So we speak the same language. We practice a lot of the same practices. And so to be able to have an advisor that's both within the same academic field as myself, but also within the same culture as myself, really made me feel welcome. And I feel truly blessed and honored to have that.
3: That's awesome. That's awesome. Was the was the intention always to get a Ph.D. or is there ever a moment of hesitation in between that?
0: Yeah. So after I got my master's, I had an experience with a mentor of mine that I really looked up to where I was sort of pushed to question, you know, whether or not the Ph.D. was for me. And from what I've heard, everyone sort of goes through that phase. Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments or here. So after I finished you know, yeah. my master's, okay, <laughs> after I finished my master's, I camped for a week and a half by myself in the woods, primitive camping. I just needed to listen. And part of what I did during that was just learning to listen. And I did a lot of soul searching and heart centering. And like I said, just listening and I after that sort of introspective moment, I realized that what what's mine to do, what I need to do is get this Ph.D. And sometimes what you need to do is not always what you want to do. I still want to quit (laughs) all the time, but it's what I need to do. The Ph.D., there's a lot of power, sadly, in my opinion, with the Ph.D. behind getting cited. Being heard, especially as a woman and an indigenous woman, the PhD means a lot. And it's more so because my ancestors and those who came before me lost so much. My grandmother, Keshnekoe, walked the trail of death for the Potawatomi and died on that trail. And being able to be here in these spaces, in these colonial spaces where she would have never been allowed to be in, is incredibly important and it's important to those who will come after me. So a lot of the reason why I'm doing this PhD is for thinking towards future generations and like who and what our children will have access to in the future. And that's really what's important to me and why I'm here.
2: I really can't stress like how much I respect, like I guess, the walkabout, for lack of a better word, that you went on. Yeah, I think a lot of us just need to step outside and like take some time outside, especially alone, just to like and you know, like you said, listen. Like just, you know, like not to get all like woo-woo, but like, you know, hear the the streams and like the birds and stuff like that just like disconnected. And like it definitely clears your head. And the fact that like you did that and then were like, I want to do my PhD, I respect the hell out of cause I would have been like, Yeah, I'm gonna go <laughs> build a shelter and hit rocks in the woods. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time learning from and again, this is this is sort of who I am. So I apologize if anyone thinks this is a little too deep or metaphorical or whatever. I listened a lot to the insects that were around me. I didn't get many other visitors while I was there except for bugs. And they actually taught me a lot and have pushed me to be more attentive and looking at other beings as relatives that are just as willing and capable of teaching as someone with a PhD in the classroom to learn from the spider how to have patience and get up in the morning to greet the sun and to listen to the patience of a frog as they sit and wait for something to pass by. Like There's a lot of lessons that even the smallest creature and being can teach us. And that's what that sort of adventure taught me, was just learning to listen. Because I I think as as students, we're often taught to talk. And especially like I have ADHD. And after learning about Mm -hmm. that during COVID, like I was diagnosed later in life, I talked a lot, especially with nervousness as a way of coping, rather than listening and actually learning. So my indigenous name is Kikendiso, which means always learning. And I didn't learn to embody that until I went on that camping trip. And I learned from other relatives that were non-human.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's a it's uh, a cool story. I mean, the audience knows I have ADHD. So like I... I uh... Yeah, it's tough to live with, and
1: I'm glad you figured it out.
0: Still figuring it out, <laughs> always. <laughs> oh right. yeah, I'm an yeah.
1: absolute mess. <laughs> All right. So, kind of following this this same thread, like your work in indigenous archaeology and decolonizing museums. Like for our audience, could you, you know, what is indigenous archaeology to you, and then how how is it prevalent in your work?
0: Yeah. So I think that upon reflecting for for this podcast and thinking about what I would say to you guys in response to that. It's a, it's a complicated answer, right? Like Carlton, you know, this, if you've watched other episodes, like where I was previously, it's a complicated answer and there's indigenous archaeologies. It's a plural. Um, So indigenous archaeology, Pulling mainly right now from Cole Chanthapone's work and specifically the text, the premise and promising of indigenous archaeology. Indigenous archaeology is archaeology that is rooted in indigenous values, autonomy, heritage, control, politics, activism, collaboration with community and education. It's never meant to be essential or like set in stone, but it's meant to be plastic and something that's adaptable through the inclusion of the community, Um, and it's made unique for each and every Indigenous community, because every Indigenous community is going to have different values, and even different communities within that broader Indigenous community will have different values. So, it's, it's adaptable and fluid and ever-changing and growing. And today people are still talking about what it means. So, yeah. And then going back to your second part of that question on decolonizing museums, yeah. <laughs> so my, I sort of turned towards decolonizing museums based more on my, my interest in indigenous tattooing practices, specifically Nishnabé or Anishinaabe tattooing practices in the Great Lakes region. And pulling from Aaron Detterwolf's work, who was in episode four, but also Christian Gates St. Pierre, who has done more recent reiterations of Aaron Dederwolf's work that has proved a little more valid and a little more tested, I guess. He has a larger sample size and has a little bit more experience with experimentation, use wear, and things like that. But upon reading Aaron Detterwolf's work, I learned that the ways that institutions have and continue to type artifacts, which is what we call for naming particular types of artifacts, is contributing to erasure in a lot of ways. And that's not necessarily something that Aaron talks about um, or other folks are talking about that are interested in tattooing, but the ways that we call bone tools just a broad category of bone tools or anyone who's been in a curation facility will see like the one bag or box just full of faunal remains and those items could potentially be used for tattooing but not many people are interested in that or investigating that so those items sort of get lost in the shuffle and are named as bone awls and needles, gar mandibles, porcupine pines, cactus pines, and they're sort of left within the ecological artifacts.
2: Like if you, you know, if those things get like a manhandled for like, I guess lack of a better word like, and you're touching the end of it where it's like the pointy end, you're going to lose the residue on it to do any kind of analysis to see if it was a tattoo implement. So that's another danger of just like filing that stuff away. as a bone all or, you know, porcupine spine or prick. I don't know what the
1: word is, but yeah, that's a good point. It's, It's tough. Yeah. And you've done like some of your own stick and poke tattoos yourself. Isn't that right, Kay?
0: Yes on myself and close family members. I have, this is also part of why I started having a mid higher education crisis Um, after my master's was, I was debating on whether or not I wanted to just do tattooing or if I wanted to get the PhD because I love doing art. However, I did not realize the amount of actual work and a lot of people don't realize the al- amount of work it takes to be a tattoo artist. It's a PhD in its- of itself to be a standalone tattoo artist. It's 10 years of apprenticeship, education, learning about hygiene, taking yearly classes to get certified. And it's it's a time investment in and of itself. And so because of that, I've only done stick and poke on myself and like my mom. But they're people I trust and I do everything by the hygiene books. I've taken my own hygiene classes to make sure I'm doing it correctly, but I will never do it on another person that is not closely related to me because of that, unless there comes a time in the future, which I'm not counting on or predicting, but... If an elder says that it's my duty, then I would take that on. But I don't think that's my job. I think my job is to be an archaeologist. And so most of what I do is experimentation. And so looking at similar to Aaron Detter-Wolf's work, recreations of artifacts and using them to tattoo, not on myself, um, likely on pig skin. If I could sustainably resource other options, I would. But as of right now, pig skin really is the best option. And sort of the experimentation side of things is you recreate the artifact you're working with and then you use it in tattooing practices. So if I'm recreating an awl, I'd recreate that bone all to the best of my ability, tattoo with it for periods of time, and then compare the use wear. So use wear analysis is where you look at an item side by side to the artifact, to the item you've experimented with, and your control item, which is the item you haven't tattooed with, and compare what those look like. And so with folks like Christian Gates St. Pierre, he was actually finding within 15 minutes of tattooing, you could tell whether a bone tool was used for actually tattooing or for working with leather. And that's only 15 minutes of time. And he was able to prove that with a pretty high significance rate. And so essentially what I would like to do is take his work and Aaron Wolf's work and indigenize it. Mm-hmm. Because there's traditional ecological knowledge there that they are not talking about. There's erasure that's not being talked about. And the fact that so many indigenous people do not have their indigenous tattooing practices and ways of reclaiming our bodies. That's really what comes down to like my research is being able to reclaim our bodies through tattoos Because tattoos have so much healing behind them. They aren't just art. They are medicinal, they're spiritual, they're cultural. And they bring all of those, they braid all of those things together in such a unique way. And especially for Indigenous women, being able to reclaim our bodies when a time that's missing and murdered Indigenous women and two-spirit folks is such a crisis and an epidemic to be able to tattoo ourselves visually and be like, I am an indigenous woman and I'm proud of it and I feel safe enough to identify myself in this way is important. And it's healing in for individuals as well as like an entire community. And this is me speculating, but like upon watching other indigenous communities like Inuit and Yupik folks and Maori folks bring back their tattooing practices, it shows that there's power in them that's unique. So that sort of like took a tangent and followed a weird little path.
2: That's really well said and like a poignant thing to say too. Like I I do see on social media and we gotta wrap up here, but like on social media there are some indigenous women that are like retaking the, you know, like facial tattoos and body tattoos that, you know, haven't been I wouldn't say illegal some places they probably were, but you know, like just frowned upon and that's cool to see. But yeah, it's also like, like, you know, getting a tattoo for me, at least as a non-indigenous person, like I usually get it after some kind of mental breakdown or I just have like a, I don't know. I just like the feeling of getting a tattoo because it's like refreshing and it's new and like you're adding something to your body. So I could see how in the past and with current indigenous societies, it might be similar.
0: Yeah. And for like, um, I'm really interested in what like your viewers have to say about some of like my hypotheses. So I have a potential idea. So bear grease is a traditional medicine that's used as a natural pain reliever. And there's a lot of herbal medicines, including stinging nettle, that's used to treat things like arthritis, joint pain, nerve pain. So I have an idea sort of based on Oatsy's Um, Who's the Iceman that was, he's a tattooed man that was found in the French or Italian apps, depending on who. Austrian. Austrian. All of the above, depending on who side you're on. It's a big political debate on who, like what side he was found on. But he has tattoos that could be potentially medicinal. And so my hypothesis is that if you mix bear grease and the ash of something like stinging nettle, it might equate to something like a cortisone shot that could be used to treat arthritis, sciatica, nerve and joint pain, and things like that. And then I also want to mention that this... Research of mine could potentially have impacts for NAGPRA, the Native American Graze Protection and Repatriation Act, especially with residue. If there's ancestral blood and DNA on these items, it really pushes for the necessity of collaboration about these items because indigenous people want to know just as much as researchers and archaeologists and museum creators do about these items. And so I think work like this, um, not just by myself, but by the numerous other indigenous people studying our tattooing practices, necessitates collaboration within museum institutions. And that is really what's key to decolonizing museums.
1: Excellent. And also Bear Grease makes the best French fry oil. And with that, we'll be right back with episode one oh two of the Life and Ruins
3: Podcast. Welcome back to the Life in Ruins Podcast. We are with Kay Matina. In this segment, we wanted to talk about experimental archaeology. So could you explain to us, what your first experience with experimental archaeology was?
0: Yeah. So in my undergrad, I had the honor of working with a twine textile that was from the island of Geteodina, which is near the upper peninsula of Michigan and in the Anishinaabe traditional homeland. And with that textile, I had the honor of rehydrating it. I was trusted to rehydrate it as an undergrad which meant a lot because we had no idea how old it was at that point in time. And so it turned from looking like a little mini wheat (laughs) to actually looking like a textile. It was preserved by copper. And we don't get many textiles out of Michigan because of its climate. And so... It was preserved in situ or in association with copper. And copper, for those who don't know, is a natural antibacterial. And so it prevented bacteria from growing and eating away at the perishable artifact. And rehydrated it with isopropyl alcohol and got it to flatten out all the way. It was about the size of my index finger and each individual thread, it was made out of a flax fiber, was about 0.3 millimeters in diameter. Incredibly fine and absolutely beautiful hand-woven, finger-woven, specifically finger-twined band or strap. And I got to replicate it after I did that. So replication is a part of experimental archaeology. There are a bunch of different types, but the two main are reconstruction and replication. So reconstruction is where you reconstruct the entire artifact, building off of like where there's broken edges, you sort of extrapolate and continue building that. And reconstruction is where you build the artifact based off of what you have in front of you. So you're creating a replica. And that's what I got to do. And through that process, I really learned to love experimentation because for me, it was a way for me to learn from my ancestors without sitting next to them. I was able to trace the ways that they twined the artifact without listening to them or being guided by them. I was guided by what they had made. And that was beautiful and healing for me. And it really got me interested in being indigenous and started exploring what it meant to me to be an indigenous scholar and researching archaeology, this historically colonial field. And so... Within my PhD, I'm turning and revisiting experimental archaeology, but also ethnoarchaeology, which ethnoarchaeology is another aspect of experimental archaeology that started long before Binford and really started in like the late 1800s. And it's more so comparing other groups that are similar to some degree to each other and pulling from contemporary peoples and the items that they're producing in the present to better inform the past and better inform our interpretations of the items we get to interact with in the past and both of these fields have been sort of related to pretty colonial figures that have done a lot of harm like people like Lewis Binford who started his work excavating burial mounds in the backyard of his home in Virginia, pretty close to where Jefferson started. Thomas Jefferson started also excavating burial mounds in Virginia. Was it him? Yeah. Thomas Jefferson was not a great guy.
1: No, his slaves excavated him. He watched. <laughs> uh, this is true. Like, this is true. Point of, clarification. True. Point of <laughs> he, clarification. He did not move any dirt in no. that analysis.
0: I don't know how, yeah. much he,
1: how much shovel he did.
0: Yeah. Yeah pretty problematic stuff. And I guess like they trying to reinvestigate this terminology and these methods that have been used in really problematic ways and have harmed a lot of people tangibly. But how these ideas can be indigenized? And I've been sort of exploring the utility in indigenizing them. And if it's possible or if we need to develop as indigenous people and allies a different form of ethnoarchaeology and experimental archaeology that better meshes with TEK or traditional ecological knowledge practices and indigenous knowledge and science Because experimentation is key to indigenous science, just as much as it is to any other science. And so that's been just a question and an inquiry of my own that I would really love to hear what other people have to say.
1: I got two things. One, one of the coolest dioramas I ever saw was at the repository at Fort, Fort Lewis College, where they had like this whole diorama of plants used to make thread textiles. That's the word I was looking for. So they actually, you could see what the plant was and then they had the yarn they made out of it. And that was like really cool to actually see. It's like, Oh, that's dope. And then the second part, like going back to that whole process of like learning from your ancestors without them teaching you and you're, you're kind of following their steps with the material culture, like working with Devin Pettigrew on like experimental ballistics. Like I get frustrated with like throwing at laddles and stuff. And like, I remember one time I was like, man, this is stupid. Cause I like missed the bison and that's the experiment. And he goes, and that like Devin's been on this podcast before and how serious he is. He's like, no Carlton, you just don't appreciate how sophisticated your ancestors were to take out megafauna. Like you can do this. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you're right, man. And he's always like, Devin's just in that mode of like, he values these weapons so much and like appreciates them truly for their capabilities and the, and the techniques and technologies that went in to actually like, it's not just a pointy rock at the end of a stick. Like he's very good at explaining like really the engineering that has to go behind these things in order to get the outcomes that we see in hunting practices here in North America. So I deeply appreciate Devin for it. And like every time he's helped me like make a Pawnee bow or an Adlatl, He's there. It's like really weird because it's like the ancestors almost speak through Devin because he researches the topic so heavily and like gets indigenous perspectives that he's telling me, well, this is why they chose this wood because it grows here. And this is how you can see through the artifact assemblage, how, why they chose it and how they interacted with it. I'm just like, man.
0: Yeah. From like the one image that I have like ingrained in my memory from me doing my undergrad is what I pulled from is an image of a Saginaw Chippewa woman that was taken by an ethnographer in the early 1900s of her sitting with her bandolier bag full of materials and she's finger weaving and she's using what looks like a microphone stand to attach it to. And I used that image cause it was the only one I could find from that time period. And she, is such a beautiful woman and I think like in spirit and in that image and what she's creating like that was so burned into me I felt such a connection to her and I could see like my grandmother who founded Town, which is now known as Notre Dame um, or South Bend her allotment is actually where the University of Notre Dame sits on I could imagine her weaving something like that and it really was like following the hands of a woman i could not see but i felt connected to and it the artifact itself taught me so much and i don't think that there's a lot of people that really give enough autonomy to the artifact itself to teach themselves to teach and I think that was really where I saw the power in something like this.
2: Yeah. I've been flint napping a lot the past two years, like trying to get good at it. And like flint napping for sure gives you so much respect and appreciation for, I mean, from all the way back into like Homo habilis of like the planning and the thought processes that have to go on while you're making a tool. And like, it's not easy. So, like, just as you flip the stone around and you're like looking at it to see like what you're doing and I'm listening to a podcast as I do it, like, and I have to think, well, what were like, who was talking around them? Like, were they all around a circle like telling stories or are they just like chilling, you know, like uh, it, it just, there's endless stuff too. And with like the art stuff that I've been doing recently too, I'm trying to think like how, Why did they make the horse, like, elongated, like, this way? Like, is it trying to run? Like, what, you know, or are they just accentuating anatomical features? And lastly, I'll shut up after this, but, like, with my dog, too, like, any ancient society that had dogs, like, we have dogs because of, like, a language that humans and will share which is like food so like at the bottom line I know my dog wants to eat something and I know I can get him to do something by providing him like you're communicating with food and like that's experimental arc to me in a way and like it kind of just gets you in that mindset of like okay how would they have done this okay we gotta strap a pack to it we gotta strap a travois to it like it's -hmm. just cool that was a tangent but yeah
0: I always joke that my dog speaks more Potawatomi than I do because she's trained (laughs) in Potawatomi
2: (laughs) oh yeah yeah huh but yeah i can't speak to the indigenous aspect of it i guess that's more on carlton but like it's got to be cool especially knowing you guys are descendants of these people like it's it's got to be cool to think about as you mess with artifacts
0: yeah it was especially cool working with that particular textile because we were able to do some carbon dating with it and dated it so the carbon dates came back between 16 50 to like 1920, but according to, I can't remember the term, but seizure records um, and removal records, we know that folks were removed from the island of Odina in the late 1830s. And so we were able to narrow that between 1640 and 1830. And from looking at the textile, it's made entirely with indigenous methods. There's no... French introduction of beads or trade beads introduced to that. It was entirely made of flax fiber or bast fiber. And I think that is also such an incredible sign of resistance and survivance during a time period where there's a sort of a stereotype of just erasure and conversion when we know that that's not the case. And this artifact shows that.
1: I'm kind of like continuing on this thread of like survivance and, and, and like continuing on something that we've talked about before in our, in our, in our group chat, you know, is talking about how difficult it can be for indigenous students in higher ed, especially at grad school or at universities that are not near home. So like, how have you found a way at, you know, UMass Amherst to find community in, in New England?
0: Yeah, with UMass specifically, there wasn't really a lot set up. We have the JWECC, the Josephine White Eagle Cultural Center, but that's mainly for undergrads. So anyone that's been to graduate school, again, correct me if you have had a different experience. I would really love to hear if you had a different experience, but where undergrads and graduate students are so incredibly siloed from each other, even though we interact and we TA with each other, we're siloed. And for my community and other Indigenous graduate students, that's really isolating too, because our part of our job is we're learning to be matriarchs for the first time. And to not be able to have Indigenous undergrads to have community with and be aunties to and sisters to is really a struggle. And then with with UMass it's a it's a massive university every department has its own building and we're all siloed from department to department and then on top of that each department might have one indigenous grad student in the entire department maybe (laughs) and so to be able to find each other when the departments themselves are so siloed is really difficult and luckily out of i think Two faculty that are Indigenous. Sonia is one of them. Sonia, my advisor. So she's really helped to connect us because people will be like, I'm an Indigenous graduate student. Where can I find community? And they immediately send her or them to Sonia. And so we have a group right now of three Indigenous grad students that get together. And I run, I work for a nonprofit organization called Gadakana. And I run a braiding sweetgrass group through them. And we do, that way it's sort of disconnected from the university because through the university, we have to make it open so anyone can join us. But with braiding sweetgrass, we can make it more closed, which is really important for indigenous students to be able to have just a tight-knit community where we can share in confidence with each other, as well as be open when we want to be open and feel able to be open. And so it's really been, entirely on the Indigenous students to form community and find each other, which we do. doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, And within our own classes, we never really have classes with each other. So within class, there's a lot of pressure to be the token Indian that can speak for all Indigenous people, which we can't do because we are one Indigenous person, often from one Indigenous tribe or sometimes multiple, but never representing everyone. But we're sort of Occasionally expected to speak for everyone or were erased and silenced and not heard. Recently, especially after the 2020 events and COVID and protests, people starting to maybe open their ears a little bit and listen to other people's struggles, there's been a a little bit of a change where my classes that aren't led by indigenous people or people of color are including indigenous authors or authors about indigenous topics. And I think that that's started to change a little bit and made me feel a little bit more welcome. But it's definitely a struggle. And then also on top of that, with the change, we're now being expected to read re-traumatizing texts in class. So right now I'm rereading Coel Chantapone's, uh, like Chip, Chip's work on Plundered Schools and Stolen Spirits. And every five pages I have to walk around and cry and then I return to it. And it's really hard to like read. Like I need to read through that thing. I know that I need to read it. But then... I also am the only indigenous person in my class that has to talk about it. And that makes it hard. And there's a lot of pressure. And I don't know that there's a lot of people that also respect that pressure. You know, like we're always asked to do land acknowledgements. We're asked to speak at indigenous events. We're asked to welcome indigenous like speakers and artists but there's not many of us. So the pressure's on like five people and UMass is a big university. And it's just a lot of pressure all the time. And I don't think that enough people in administration or elsewhere really understand how much that is a struggle, especially for graduate students who are trying to get through grad school on their own.
1: Yeah, I can vouch, that sucks. (laughs) Well, before we end the show, Kay, what are a couple sources, (laughs) just books, articles, or media that you'd recommend for anyone interested in uh, decolonial museums, indigenous archaeology, or tattooing practices in North America?
0: Yeah, so... I think the big one for me right now is my advisor, Dr. Sonia Attalay and Dr. Alexandra McCleary just published their edited volume. That's the Community-Based PhD, Complexities and Triumphs of Conducting CBPR. And all of the chapters are written by their graduate students. So it really gives you a good picture of like what it means to do a community-based PhD because doing community-based PhDs is often really scary because it does take a lot of time and relationship building, but it really shows like where it's worth it, but it also is really honest about where people struggled. And then the other big thing for me is at the organization I work for, gadakana.org, they have a one-shelf book project where every year we donate one shelf of Indigenous books to high schools, junior highs, and elementary schools throughout the Donland, also known as New England, that are written by Indigenous authors. Uh, And we have that book list, which is a really useful resource, especially if you are an educator. And then, of course, keep an eye out for in the years to come, the Indigenous Archaeologies volume that Carlton is working on. I am honored to have a chapter in that, so hopefully I will have a little bit of a reformed idea about what I'm doing (laughs) with this PhD.
1: Awesome. Spring 2023. Not years to come. It's coming out next year, Kay.
2: Next year, next year, yeah. It's coming.
0: It's a a year to come.
1: (laughs) It's
2: just one more year (laughs) in the uh in the meantime before that book comes out where can our listeners find you on the socials or on the academias
0: okay so on the socials you can find me on insta at o underscore so o h underscore k k a y 13 and on twitter you can find me at matina k and then as far as if you want to get in contact with me my Email is K-M-A-T-T-E-N-A at UMass.edu. Feel free to reach out if you have any ideas or interested in tattooing, have any resources, because resources on this are particularly hard to find. So if you found anything incredibly interesting that you think I should know about, let me know. But yeah, thanks for having me.
3: And all that info will be on our show notes as well as links to things like that.
1: Yeah, maybe we should have you on with Rebecca Lamb. We should have you guys on together
3: and we can chat tattoos yeah. and get into some New England stuff. Right back yeah, to you. That Hunter. would be really yeah. cool. <laughs> As we're finishing this out, because this is a life in ruins, we're gonna ask you a really cheesy question that's related mm-hmm. to the name of this podcast. So right. if you had the opportunity or if you were giving another chance, would you still choose to live a life in ruins?
1: Always. Excellent. Well everyone, we just interviewed Kay Matina. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter. We will have her handles down below as well as her email address if you want to get in contact with her. Thanks. Hey guys.
2: This next part of the podcast is where I have to get real. And like, didn't you guys really enjoy Kay's episode today? It was so good. And it was so good that if I was listening to the podcast for the first time or was listening to the podcast and hadn't left a review, I would scroll to my Apple podcasts. I would go right up to that review section. <laughs> I would write, what an excellent episode about indigenous tattoo practices with Kay Matina and spell it right and even say it right in your head. And look at that. You mm. will have like five <laughs> stars. Maybe four. Give us one star. I don't care. Give us a review. And Carlton will send you uh, <laughs> a little Ip sticker <laughs> handwritten in the mail with a stamp and all. Right, Carlton?
1: Yeah, we're still sitting at that January 25th review. So it's, it's February 28th. We're still looking for reviews, guys. Like, it's been a month since our last review. Just one review before the nuclear winter, guys. Come on. Yeah, before World War Three, we all get drafted. <laughs> Give us a review. Because once we're drafted, the show ends. And then, you know. I'm on too many pills to be drafted. It's kind of <laughs> awesome. All
0: right. <laughs> and then me and Emily and other Indigenous women will take it over.
1: Go yeah. for it. You can have it. You can have this you, train wreck.
2: Right, yeah. <laughs> Carlton and I were talking about that the other day. You guys are like, whenever you guys want to use this platform to talk about anything, like Connor and I are good to step off. You guys can do
1: whatever you want. So just let us know. Yeah. SAA 2022 is coming up. We'll see what happens <laughs> at that train wreck. Yeah. No, I'm okay. I'll sit <laughs> out.
0: Thanks. Excellent.
1: All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can
2: follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com.
3: And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right. For those that made
1: it through the credits, it is time for Connor's favorite segment, his closer. That was the cat food alarm. We'll just ignore that. Uh, he's not even here
3: right now. So, Connor, what do you got for us today, bud? Oh, he will be. It's Unfortunately, it's not cat-related, but, you know, I hope it's still pretty funny. So, I've, I've recently started telling people about the benefits of eating dried grapes. You know, it's, it's really about raising awareness. All right. That was, that was pretty good.